This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, isn't this refreshing? A happy... Rico Bronia, a series-winning Rico Bronia, as the New York Mets have stunned us. They have won a series against one of the many, 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 many teams they trail in the National League, the San Francisco Giants, and this on the heels of a brutal Friday loss to really cap off one of the worst months you could ever see, the June swoon of 2023, but it all turned around thanks to the bald head of Pete Hoffman. He shaved his head. What day did you shave your head? Was it Friday, Pete, that you did that? Yeah, I did did, did it on Friday, but it was still June, so whatever. We'll move on. (laughs) And I showed up. What I had to do was I had to actually walk into City Field. I didn't tell anybody that, which I did. July 1st, I was here Saturday when the winning streak began. Wow. Okay. So I won't penalize you for Friday because it's funny. When we go back and look at these games – And it's easier to gloss over it now because they won Saturday, they won Sunday, they win a series. But Friday night's game was just, I mean, it was as bad of a kick to the balls as we've seen all year, you know, when you really think about it. But it was June. It was June on the calendar. And as soon as that calendar flipped to July, we got Justin Verlander dominating the Mets, hitting a bunch of home runs. And they win back-to-back games. Now, we'll get to all three games. There's a lot of other things to discuss. Pete Alonso in the home run derby. Some of the odd comments Buck Showalter's made over the last few days. Why Bobby Bonilla Day pisses me off. And we'll think back to the worst June swoon that we've ever seen. And it wasn't this year. But before we get started, nothing's been fixed. I want to make that clear. While we may enjoy ourselves on this, Rico, and I'm happy the Mets won, and I'm happy they won a series, And it felt good walking out of City Field Sunday night, sun in hand, chanting, let's go Mets. I don't want anybody to think that anything is fixed. They were bound to win a series. The Oakland A's have won series. The Kansas City Royals have won series. So it's going to take a lot more than two out of three against the Giants to say, okay, the run has begun. With that said, I'll call out the positives and we'll certainly talk about the positives. But this franchise and this team has a long way to go. They got a long way to go to not only just being in a pennant race, but avoiding what could be an odd sell-off over the next few weeks. And I think we're going to find out a lot on this upcoming trip. We'll spend some time on that. The three games in Arizona, the three games against San Diego going into the All-Star break. What they do on this West Coast trip could help determine where this thing is going. But let's go back to Friday because – 
The Mets open up this series against the San Francisco Giants after losing three out of four to the Milwaukee Brewers. And early on, it felt okay. You know, it felt good. They they actually scored a first inning run on Friday, which was stunning. Jeff McNeil hit an RBI double. I mean, when you think about all that, a first inning run, an extra base hit by Jeff McNeil, an early Met lead, like none of that makes sense. That, none, none of those are things we've seen throughout this season. But they took an early one nothing lead. Carlos Carrasco immediately gives it back. They immediately take it back with some shoddy San Francisco Giant defense. The Giants tie the game in the fifth inning. The Mets come back and tie the game again or take the lead again on another RBI double by Jeff McNeil. And that was the weird one. That was the one that made me think, okay, maybe things are turning. Because in the fifth inning of this game, after Francisco Lindor got absolutely robbed by Luis Matos on this great running catch, Jeff McNeil comes up with a runner on first base and two outs and hits a ball down the left field line that is clearly touched by a fan. A fan reaches over and grabs it. 99% of the time, the umpires will just automatic double. The runner's on first, he goes to third. Very rarely will they allow a runner to score. And in the rare times that they do it, it's just so obvious. It's like one of those, well, he was a thousand percent going to score. Let's put him on home plate. One quick interlude. It's not Met related, but it is related to a ruling like this. The great collapse of 04, the Yankee collapse against the Red Sox, does not happen if umpires are aggressive. Tony Clark, who's now you know the head of the Players Association, but Tony Clark had a, what could have been an RBI double in extra innings against the Red Sox in game five, I think it was, not game four, game five. They didn't rule the runner to score. They called it second and third, two outs. Next guy made out. A few innings later, the Red Sox won. If they were aggressive in saying, hey, and the runner would have scored on that, by the way, that Tony Clark double. Go back and watch it on YouTube. Runner would have definitely have scored, but umpires in general don't get overly involved. They just say second and third call it a day. On the Jeff McNeil double in the fifth inning, I didn't think Brandon Nimmo was going to score. So not only is it not obvious that Nimmo's going to score, I don't think he's going to score. And you see the umpires rule, yeah, we're going to give Nimmo home. And I was stunned. I was stupefied by this. They then go to replay, which I totally understand because Gabe Kapler's thinking, come on, what, what are we doing here? But because they don't want to overrule things, and that's one thing we've certainly learned about replay, and we saw that on Saturday as well, I wasn't positive they were going to overrule it, because the umpires on the field were awarding Brandon Nimmo home. But that was stunning. Like that is, that is a call you never, ever, ever see, especially on something that we could literally debate for an hour on if Brandon Nimmo was going to score. If it's a debate, they're not going to put the guy on home, but they did. And it gave the Mets the lead. And I thought to myself, and I was hours behind watching this game. Actually, you know what? I don't think I was hours behind on Friday. I was like a half hour behind. But I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe the worm's going to turn here. Because this is a big break. This is a pretty big break to be given a run like this. And it didn't. <laughs> I mean, the spoiler is even after Tommy Pham hit a home run and gave them a two-run lead, the collapse was stunning because it came from the one guy who has not collapsed all year for the most part, and that's David Robertson. And think about this. 
You get five good innings out of Carlos Carrasco, which is a stunner. And I got no issue with Buck pulling him after the five and the 92 pitches. He gets four great outs from Jeff Brigham, which is stunning. He gets great work from Brooks Raleigh. Not as stunning, but Brooks Raleigh comes in and does the job. And he goes to David Robertson in the eighth inning with a two-run lead. Totally on board with that because the Giants at the time had the heart of the batting order coming up. So this fit right with what Buck has done a lot of and what I'm good with, which is, hey, let me use my best reliever against their best hitters. And it was so innocuous. He strikes out Wilma Flores, one out, nobody on up by two. And then everything changed on the Pete Alonso error. Pete Alonso commits a bad error with one out and nobody on. But even then, I'm not expecting the cave or the roof to cave in. He issues the walk to J.D. Davis. And then this Patrick Bailey, who's just an incredible story when you think about it, because he was never putting up big numbers in the minor leagues. He's in the major leagues now and as a switch hitting catcher is hitting well over 300. And it's been tremendous for San Francisco. Stunningly hits this bomb of a three-run home run. And I'm sitting there. I wasn't at the game. I'm sitting there in my uh, bedroom just stupefied. Like, you got to be effing kidding me. Like, really? You know, as much as we wait for the other shoe to drop, I think what really alarmed me about Friday is I didn't expect the other shoe to drop. I, I genuinely thought after the gift run they were given, with David Robertson on the mound, even after the Alonzo error, I actually thought, hey, we're going to win this game. Not not that it's going to fix everything, but okay, we're going to win the opener against San Francisco. Probably lose the next two games, but we're going to win the opener. And when Bailey hit that ball to center field, and I'm watching Nimmo dart back, I, I was stunned. And I think that's what made the subsequent loss because... They lost, and they didn't really put up much fight in the eighth and ninth inning, including Starling Marte getting caught stealing as he pinch ran for Luis Guillorme. But it was just a stunning loss. It was – I didn't feel that one coming, Pete. Did you feel that one coming? Because that was a slap out of nowhere. No, I, I same here, and, and it was – neither did the team. Like, because here's the thing is we know that they could score in, like, bunches, and then once they're done, they're done. And once that home run took place, like the offense was dead. You could just see it. it. It's like it's done. And like we got lucky with the Guillaume walk. But even how after Marte gets picked off the next pitch, Nimmo strikes out. And like the reaction from the fans, the reaction from Nimmo, I don't, we didn't even know what happened. No one even yeah. knew he struck out. It was so weird. Well, I think I think what happened was, so if you're forgetting what happened in that ninth inning, one out, nobody on, Luis Guillorme's pinch hitting for Omar Narvaez, and I mean, which is, it's like crap for crap, basically. And to Guillorme's credit, he worked a walk against Camilo Duvall. It was a good at-bat by Guillorme, works out a walk. He immediately gets pinch run for by Marte. Marte got back-to-back off days because I think Buck tried to fix him after what happened on Thursday, by sitting him back-to-back days. So he didn't didn't even use him as a pinch hitter. And there certainly would have been opportunities to. I mean, you could have used him as a pinch hitter instead of Guillaume. I mean, think about that. Like, logic would have said, why aren't you using him? You could have used him earlier in the game when they pinch hit for Daniel Vogelback, but it was earlier in the game. So, <laughs> excuse me, so maybe you don't want to. You also could have used him when they pinched hit for Mendick, who had pinched hit for Vogelback. They used Francisco Alvarez, which creates that awkward spot of, hey, if the Mets had come back and tied the game, they were going to lose the designated hitter. So clearly Buck 
and I, I don't have a problem with this, by the way. Clearly, Buck was saying, I don't want Marte batting. I want to give him a true mental off day for a couple of days from playing offense. I'll send him in there as a pinch runner because he's fast and maybe he could steal a base, but I don't want him taking an at-bat, which after what happened on Thursday, fine. Like I, I didn't have a, a huge issue with that. But after Guillaume draws the walk, he immediately goes to Marte, who gets caught stealing. And I think where the confusion was, I don't think the crowd realized when Nimmo swung and missed that there were two strikes on him. So I think that's what led to the kind of confused crowd. But it was it was a terrible ending because the Mets in the ninth inning are only down by a run. And remember, they got through a tricky spot in the top of the ninth inning. Grant Hartwig got into trouble and got a huge ground out of J.D. Davis with a couple of guys on base to keep it a one-run game. So not that any of us thought they were going to come back, but it was a one-run game. It wasn't a five-run game. It wasn't a three-run game. And the Mets finally get caught stealing. That was the other thing. They, they had this incredible streak of, what was it, 34 in a row, 35 in a row. And in the worst spot possible to get caught, Stalling Marte gets caught. And he was caught. Like It wasn't even a question. That was, I, that game ends. And I seriously thought to myself, I can't watch anymore. I got to take a break. Like, I, I don't want to watch Saturday. I got to take a break. Now, I never got that far. Because, of course, by Saturday night uh, on DVR, I think I got home at 1130 at night, had some things on Saturday. I looked at my DVR. I looked at my scorebook and I said, of course, I'm going to watch. Like, who's Who am I kidding? Of course, I'm going to sit down and watch this game. And luckily, things started to turn because Friday, I, I don't know where this season's going. It's probably going nowhere, obviously. I think we're all, we've pretty much all come to that conclusion. But we had talked about rock bottom a lot. This is rock bottom. That's rock bottom. I do hold out hope that Friday against the Giants was rock bottom. Doesn't mean the Mets are making the playoffs. Doesn't mean something magical is about to happen. But, you know, I do at least hope they're going to be good enough to give us some relevant baseball over the next couple of weeks and months. And if that's not rock bottom, we're screwed. We have to hope that's rock bottom. 10 games under 10 games under 500. Blowing a game in the eighth inning out of absolute nowhere. Yeah, that that would have been, at least that's the way it felt, that it was rock bottom. They come back on Saturday. This one I was on extreme DVR for. I admit that. Got back, started this game at like 1130 at night. And Justin Verlander, I'll start with him, was really good. It was. It was good to see. It was good to see vintage Justin Verlander. And I thought where Verlander was his most vintage self was in the seventh inning, his final inning in this game, in which he got into trouble, not helped out by bad defense again by Pete Alonso, who did not have a great defensive weekend. And really, the Mets defensively had a crappy weekend overall. Like, despite winning two out of three, they kicked the ball around way too much. Not good. De- and their defense this season sucked. And that was after the first month of the year where they were pretty clean. Like, they, they were clean the first month of the year. I don't know what the hell's happened. But what I thought was great about Verlander is he really pumped up that fastball when he needed to in the seventh inning of this game, which is something I remember seeing from afar with Verlander, where he knew, okay, this may be my last pitch. This is going to be my biggest out. I got to find a way through it. And he did in that seventh inning. It was a shaky inning, but ultimately he only gave up one run that was unearned. 
He was given a 4 nothing lead when the Mets hit the three home runs in the third inning. Francisco Alvarez went oppo, which was beautiful to see. Brandon Nemo has been on a power surge. He's overall had a pretty good offensive season. And even Francisco Lindor hit one for his 17th home run of the year. They gave Verlander the insurance. Tommy Pham. And I think we need to spend some time on Tommy Pham because this is ridiculous. Tommy Pham has played every single day since the Atlanta series. I'll tell you exactly when it started. When Pete Alonso got drilled by Charlie Morton, Tommy Pham came into the game that day and actually produced. He has started every single game since. And I think at first we were like, ah, Tommy Pham. We really need to see Tommy Pham. I know I said that a few times. But then eventually you come around because he's performing. I mean, this is a performance business. He's performing. Of course, I want him out there every day. And Tommy Pham plays every single day, mostly left field, sometimes DH, and he gets two hits every day. He hits a bomb once every couple of days. He's on base three times every single game. It really is incredible what Tommy Pham has done. Tommy Pham has, more, has blossomed into the MVP of the New York Mets. Now, what does that mean when you're, you know, eight games under 500 may not mean much, may not be an award you want. But man, this guy's been awesome. And I think I said this on the last Rico that Tommy Pham should bat second. It took Buck until Sunday night. He did it. He finally said, F it. He's my guy. I'm going to bat Tommy Pham number two. So, you know, we can read off the numbers if you want to hear it, but I think we all know it. If you're watching the Mets every day, he's getting two hits every single night. He has been so ridiculously productive. And on that Saturday game, he had an RBI double. What else is new? He's driven in 33 runs this year. He's already got nine home runs. Uh, His batting average continues to soar. And even got robbed in center field that he had a shot that the center fielder uh, yep. ran into the wall. I forgot who the center fielder was. Matos. Yeah, dude, I mean, he has been ridiculous. And listen, this is something that we they've hoped for with when they brought in, like, Darren Roth and Vogelback. This is kind of what they were hoping for. They get, like, lightning in a bottle. We found it with Tommy Finn. Well, he's been more than we could have even imagined because I think initially the thought was he's the right-handed DH. He's more than that. He's The guy he's benched is Mark Hanna. That's the guy who's really suffered playing time the most because Canna was pretty much an everyday left fielder last year, and I think Tommy Pham has essentially taken that job. Now, if the Mets don't get relatively hot, he's also the number one guy to be traded, as good as he's been, because it's a one-year deal. He's not this good. I mean, Tommy Pham has a resume. He's not this good. And... I think I made the comment to Big Mac off air and because the Yankees jump out at us. We watch the Yankees a lot more than every other team. So obviously there are a plenty of teams in baseball that can use Tommy Pham. The Yankees aren't the only one. But I said to Big Mac, because the Yankees have no left field. I mean, look at their left field situation. Think about it. And I said to him, literally, I will give you Tommy Pham tomorrow for any one of your relievers. You tell me the reliever you want to send back to me. You want to send Albert Abreu back? Cool. You want to send Ian Hamilton back? Great. Like you, you name any one of your stud relievers because the Yankees obviously have one of the best bullpens in baseball, the best bullpen in baseball. And you look at the Met bullpen and any guy they send back for Tommy Pham automatically becomes our second or third best reliever. But I, 
But I'm not even joking because unless you believe they're about to go on the West Coast and go win six in a row, Fam's the guy to deal. He's going to be the guy to deal because he's just a vet. You know who he is? He's like a Marlon Bird. Remember Marlon Bird had just this career season? Yeah, you got to cash out. He's not this good. If the Mets were in a pennant race, I'd say, great, keep them. Run them out there every day. But I think the next few weeks will tell us that. We'll, we'll have a better picture of it. You're not trading him today. I know that Aroldis Chapman was traded a few days ago, so it creates the illusion of, well, it's starting. Start trading guys today. Obviously, Escobar was traded. I think those circumstances are different. But look, Tommy Pham's been amazing. That's the bottom line. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Uh, the other thing from that Saturday game that was so fascinating is Verlander gets through the seventh. They've got the four-to-one lead. Drew Smith did a great job in the eighth. Adam Adovino comes into the ninth inning. And I thought based on replay, and certainly Gary Cohen thought it too, that Luis Guillorme's turn on the double play that ended the game he was not on second base. Now, I've gotten a few DMs from Met fans showing me evidence that his foot actually was on the base. So it was so lightning quick. 
that it's very tough to tell. But I will say that watching the replay Saturday night, it did not look like Luis Guillorme was on second base. Though he turns the double play, man, as quickly as anybody. Say what you want about Luis Guillorme. He is so quick at turning a double play. And I just figured, okay, this game's not over. Mets win on a double play. Oh, wait a second. We're reviewing it. They're going to overturn it. And when the umpires didn't, it was like another mini break. Mets have gotten a few of these. I mentioned on Friday, the ground rule double. There was something else from Friday too that I'm trying to remember that jumped, that, that was like lucky. I forget what it was. But certainly the replay on Saturday was lucky. Did you think his foot was on the base, Guillaume? No, no, not at all. I Because when we were, I was getting ice cream with Anthony at the time up in the uh, Piazza Club, and I saw the replay right in front of me. I'm like, dude, he uh, – Anthony's like, what happened? Was it a double play? I go, no, we're going to have to replay it. We're going to have to do it because Guillaume wasn't – his foot was never on the bag. And this is the thing, though. Ev, you're right. We've gotten calls lately that have gone away, and that's part of the problem with what's happened in the first half of the season. Mets never got a freaking call. Like, I mean, you go back to replays where it's like Nimmo gets his, his hand in on time, but the umps don't overturn it. It's like it, we finally are starting to get things our way, which is nice. I know it's two, three games, but or two or three goals, but at least it's nice to see, right? Yes. Yes and no. Yes, of course, <laughs> I want every call to go the Mets' way. I don't feel looking back at the first half of this season as if bad breaks has really led to eight games under 500. It's bad baseball. That's really what it is. It's not responding the way last year's team responded, where blow a lead, hey, you can still win a game by coming back in your bottom of the eighth or bottom of the ninth. You know what I mean? Bad bullpen effort, bad starting pitching, bad defense, bad managing. So, yeah, I can't dispute that. It's nice to have calls go your way, of course. It's it's nice to have breaks go your way. But I don't think that's the main culprit for why they've been in the spot that they're in. Now, has there certainly been, especially with Pete Alonso, and that's why I felt so good for him hitting the home run on Sunday, has Pete Alonso hitting some bad luck over the last couple of Yes, no doubt about it. I mean, guys hitting the bad luck. I think Jeff McNeil at times has hit into bad luck this season. So there is luck involved. But it ain't the main culprit. You know what I mean? The main culprit has been they haven't been good enough. So, yeah, they had a few things go their way. But besides that, they got to play better. I do want to read one email because it jumped out at me and it's related to Saturday. So it'll at least uh, stay in chronological order. Kyle M. writes, Vogel booze. Like everyone says, I love the pod, blah, blah, blah. My point is about Vogel. Don't get me wrong, he sucks. Absolutely sucks. But while at the game today, and he's talking about Saturday's game, I can't help but notice the chorus of boos coming his way after he made outs against a left-handed pitcher. Yeah, Vogelback faced uh, Sean Manaya when he came into that game in the fourth inning. He struck out looking and he grounded out. Does anyone realize he has never hit left-handed pitching? He's a career 132 hitter against lefties. That's like booing Steve Traxel. He's a career 163 hitter when making it out. To me, the boos after striking out and grounding out against Manaya seemed out of place because he's not expected to hit the guy. Are we that frustrated with this guy and this team that we just want the pound of flesh that bad? If so, then we're probably in much in a much darker place than I had imagined. Or as most Mutt fans totally missing the point. 
I know you aren't one to boo, but please help me understand this. Kyle Miller. I'll explain this very easily. Most fans at games are not privy to the fact that Daniel Vogelback blows against lefties. You know what I mean? Like, I know that. You know that. I think a lot of people listening know that. I was even thinking when Manaya came in the game in the fourth inning, I thought Buck was going to pinch hit for him. I really did because Vogelback is non-competitive against lefties. He is the straightest of platoons that one can have. He cannot face lefties. I don't think he's ever gotten a hit against the lefty as a New York man. Now, maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe someone can look it up. But forget about his career numbers against lefties. No, no. As a Met, can you name me when he's gotten a hit? Because I don't remember one off the top of my head. So I actually thought in the fourth inning, runner on first, nobody out, 3 nothing. Here comes Danny Mendick. I thought that. Here comes Morgana. Like, I, I thought he'd pinch hit for him. But 38,000 Met fans are just booing a guy that they see underachieving. That's all they're doing. They're not thinking about the matchup. They're not thinking, ah, this isn't fair. He shouldn't be facing a lefty. It's they're literally booing a guy who, when they look at the scoreboard, they see a 211 batting average. And, and, and now that we're talking about Daniel Vogelback, we had a little bit of a respite from bashing Daniel Vogelback. Because remember, he had the mental break and then he came back and he looked okay. Like he looked good. He was actually productive. He had a couple of. Uh, pretty good games in a row, actually, in which you know, we had to be honest. We had to say, hey, look, Daniel Vogelback looks good. Daniel Vogelback's producing. Daniel Vogelback has driven in six runs in his last two games. And that happened in Houston. Since the Houston series, and this includes the home run he hit against the Brewers a few days ago. Let me add this up. 0 for 4, 0 for 3, 0 for 4. So that's 0 for 11. Then he's got the 2 for 4 with a home run. So that is two for, uh, hold on, I, I lost count already. Seven, 11, two for 15, two for 16, two for 18, two for 20, two for 23. Okay. He's two for his last 23. <laughs> I mean, he's back to sucking. He's back to not being good. So after that little bit of a respite, after the Atlanta series, had like a week off, he came back. He had a home run against the Cardinals. He's back. Daniel Vogelback. What did I just say? He is two for his last 23, two for his last 24. Is that what I said? Yeah, 223. Yes, he's he's terrible. Actually, I forgot to add. Uh, wait, did he play Sunday? No, I didn't play Sunday. He did not play Sunday. He no. did not play Sunday. That's right, because they were but, DHing uh, Pete Alonso. By so the Vogelback way, didn't DH. he does not have a hit yet this season versus a lefty. He's scored one run to struck out six times. I'm sure that in those six at-bats where he struck out, he didn't swing the bat at all. That's the, pro- <laughs> that's the problem, man. You could be non-competitive, but, like, he did ground out. So I was like, I actually tipped my hat. I was like, wow, you right. made contact. You offered. He saw pitches that go down the plate, and he doesn't offer. That's I, what's frustrating. I think we are, you know, we, we talked last time as this season spirals. When do you start to make the moves to get young? When do you say, okay, I just want to play the young guys? So here's where I'm at with Tommy Pham. I said earlier, we'll know in about a week or two if they should completely sell or if they're about to go on a run. Tommy Pham's a sell. Based on his contract, based on who he is, and based on the fact that I think you'll actually be able to get something back. 
Right now, you're not getting anything back for Daniel Vogelback. I think that more so than even a month ago when we were all screaming, play Vientos, I think we're back at the point where he can't play anymore. I mean, what what is the point? You know what I mean? Like, Tommy Pham has earned his playing time. So despite his age and despite his resume, he clearly gives the Mets the best chance to win. I I think we're done with Vogelback, and I think more today than a few weeks ago, I think the DFA is the best option. You, you're not getting anything for him. I don't think there's anything he could do over the next four weeks that's going to change that either. Like, he'd have to get red hot. And even then, like, is that going to change his trade value? Is that going to make a team say, ooh, let's trade for Daniel Vogelback? So I think it goes back to the old discussion we had a few weeks ago about Vientos comes up here and plays. Mauricio comes up here and plays. I know Mauricio's learning positions, but here's a position, DH. Come up here and face Major League Pitching. We know you need to work on playing the outfield and working on playing second base, and I get that. But how about the challenge of facing Major League Pitching? Because I think we're all done with I mean, more so today than a month ago, we're done with Daniel Vogelback. But you just made a point there. You go, you know, BDH, because I know you have to work on your defense. But we just talked about how crappy the defense has been all season long anyway. What's the difference if Mauricio goes out out there and puts a ball here or there? The the difference is it would be worse. (laughs) I I don't know, man. It's been – even Tommy Pham. Tommy (laughs) Pham. Listen, and for all the good he's done, he missed the ball today. I know, I know. A little little blooper to left field, sliding play, couldn't catch it. Yeah, I I get it. I'm not killing Tommy Pham. He's given us, he's given the Mets too much. I'm just just making a point that everyone sucks defensively. It's not. not They're a bad defensive team, which is crazy. Pete's had a very bad defensive weekend against it. It's just, it doesn't make a lot. Lindor missed the play I thought he should have made. Beatty missed the play he should have made. I mean, it's, it's everybody, really. And I, I just, if you're going to start to, you know, rework this this defensive, like, lineup and stuff like that, I kind of like, like, if Marte, if we could find a way to trade him, if, if that's something that's going to happen, we're going to start offloading people. If Marte is the guy that's going to be, if we could find a way to get rid of him, I'd prefer McNeil in right field for some reason than left field. All right, so we'll have a pod, I'm sure, soon, kind of examining who to trade, who not to trade, what can you get, what can you not get. I'll give you a quick view on Marte. I'm not in a rush to trade him because I think his value is so low. And, you know, it's funny. I I was having this conversation a few days ago with a net fan friend of mine about Ben Simmons. Like, I hate Ben Simmons, right? I don't want to trade him right now. He has no value. And Marte is, I don't want to say he's similar to Ben Simmons, but you know what I mean? It's similar in that we're in such a rush to trade guys who are bad. Well, yeah, you're not going to get anything. And I hold out hope with Marte, who still has two years left on his deal, because he said it to ESPN the other day, that this off-season surgery has affected him. So is that the end of his career? Is he washed? Is he never going to be healthy? Or is it, hey, he's having a down year, and it's contributed from the fact that he had major off-season surgery? I think because of the fact I'm not getting anything for him, I'd have to eat most of his salary to get what I'd rather take the bet of, you know what? I'd run it back with him next year. I would. And I wouldn't be in a rush to just offload him because we're all making the declaration. He's done. That's what we're doing off a half of a season off a guy who we all loved last year off a guy who, you know, is, is he done? 
That that's the tricky part. I mean, we could look at his age and say, well, look how old he is. He's coming off of major surgery, two surgeries last year during the offseason. And I'm not making an excuse for him. I'm trying to rationalize what's my best course of action. Is my best course of action to pay off his contract and get a B-level prospect back? That's not my best option. Yeah, but you know what? Your best option is probably to put him on the IL. And I feel like they've been so hesitant to do that. They could have done that with Vogelback. I, I know that, you know, mental. That's different, by the way. Putting him on the IL and saying, hey, let's give him some rest, which I don't even know if that's going to fix his offensive issues, is far different than saying, let me pay off the last two years of his contract to get nothing back. No, I, I get that. And, and you're 100% right. But the point is this, is that if you have people that are being ineffective offensively, defensively, whatever the case is, it's time to actually do something about it. And if you're not going to, if you can't trade them because you don't have no value and you're not going to DFA them because you don't want to just pay the money, then put them on the IL. Like, like there's guys like no offense, Jeff Brigham. I don't need to see him anymore. There's too many games now that like the Sunday's game almost got blown because Jeff Brigham. Well, okay. Let's get the Sunday's game. So the Mets win the finale of this series, but it certainly wasn't easy. Okay. It was not, it was not a comforting victory. Pete Alonzo had an outstanding at-bat, bailing out Lindor, who popped up with the bases loaded and one out after an inning was set up by a hit batsman and two walks. And Pete had this great 10-pitch at-bat, drew a walk to tie the game up at one. Jeff McNeil had an infield single. They took advantage of Brandon Crawford just not catching a baseball at second base, and they turned it into a 3-1 to lead. They got a home run by Mark Hanna. They got an RBI double by the great Tommy Pham. And now it's a 5-1 to game. So here are the things that were weird about how this was handled by Buck Showalter. He took David Peterson out after four innings. David Peterson was by no stretch of the imagination dominant. There were guys on base every single inning, including that fourth inning, where with two outs and nobody on, he gave up a hit and a double, but then got out of it. He has pitched four innings. He's got a pitch count of 61. He's only given up a run. He's got a five to one lead. Why would you be in such a rush to get David Peterson out of this game? Not that I'm expecting him to dominate the fifth and sixth inning. I don't know, but I'm trying to get outs. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking to myself, okay. I have basically one reliever, maybe two, because Brooks Raleigh's been good. So I don't want to put him in the bin of non-trustworthy. But I don't have a lot of trustworthy relievers. Let me see if I can steal some outs from David Peterson in the fifth inning. And instead, he went to Grant Hartwig, which early on looked really good because Hartwig pitched a scoreless fifth. Hartwig pitched a scoreless sixth. I mean, he got great work out of him. But now he goes to Jeb Brinkham who has been very up and down as a Met. I can't say he's been all down because I just talked about how well he pitched on Friday when he got four outs. He did. He pitched well on Friday. He comes into this game in the seventh inning. And my first question I'd have for Buck is, because forget the Peterson stuff. He made the call. It worked out early on. He got the two innings out of Hartwig. Why are you not just going to Brooks Raley? Like right then and there, why are you not going to him? Why mess around? You already saw Gabe Kapler went to his left-handed bench players. Uh, He went to Jock Peterson, who was due to lead off the seventh inning. He went to him two innings earlier. He's got no one right-handed on his bench. So you now know he's stuck 
with these lefty bats. You can't pinch hit for him. And instead, he's going to Jeff Brigham to start the seventh inning, who walks Jock Peterson with a 5-1 to lead. Now, Gabe Kapler goes to another left-handed bat off the bench, and Blake Sable has had a good year, because Rayleigh's not in the game. If Rayleigh's in the game, he's not going to Blake Sable, who, by the way, promptly hits a two-run home run. So I didn't understand why with a bullpen that clearly he has, he's going to use everybody because they have an off day on Monday. And he did. He ended up using Ottavino. He used Robertson. He ended up using Brooks Raley. Why did it take so long to use what I would argue is his second best reliever? David Robertson's his best. Okay, who's the Mets' second best reliever? Based on performance, it's Brooks Raley. And he doesn't go to him. He goes to Jeff Brigham. And then he goes to Dominic Leone. I just, I hated who he was going to, why he was going to them in the seventh inning. He finally goes to Raleigh to get Brandon Crawford with two on and two out. And all of a sudden the Met lead down to just a measly one run. So he went to Raleigh eventually and he got a big out, but he should have gone to him earlier. You were going to use him. So why, why not go to him to face Jock Peterson and then keep Blake Sable's ass on the bench? Rayleigh starts the eighth, does a fine job, though he hits a guy, and then Adam Adovino comes in. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Adam Adovino. He cannot throw a freaking strike. He walks the – no one's ever confused Wilmer Flores with being patient, by the way. He walks Wilmer Flores on four pitches. He drills Tyro Estrada. And then I know J.D. Davis has had a really good season, and J.D. Davis had an RBI double one inning earlier. When I think of J.D. Davis's tenure as a New York Met, I think of all the times he swung through fastballs, as I think of. How many times did J.D. Davis swing through a fastball right down the middle? And it was only fitting that when Adam Adovino struck out J.D. Davis, he didn't do it with a sweeper. He didn't do it with a slider. He did it with a fastball right down the freaking middle of cutter, but still. And J.D. swung and missed. And it was only fitting because I had to hear a lot about J.D. Davis the last few days. I had to hear, I got to read this quote from J.D. Davis. It's this guy. J.D. Davis, I haven't been in the clubhouse and I haven't talked to that many guys over there, but there's a sense of, I wouldn't say panic, but definitely a sense of walking on eggshells over there. Interesting. J.D. saying that about the Mets locker room. Well, why do you say that, J.D.? Quote, I got on first base twice on Saturday and I tried to talk to Pete and Pete was very mumble mouth and only said a few words. That's not Pete. Like Pete is very jubilant, a very joyful guy in the clubhouse and on the field. He's a great guy to play with as a guy I played with for four years, just to have a 30 second conversation and have a sense that he wasn't himself. So it definitely takes a toll on you, especially when there's as much expectations for that team. Come on, J.D. Is it not possible that Pete Alonzo is hitting 170 over the last month? Is it not possible that Pete Alonzo has been in line drives right at people and is frustrating, frustrated? He was breaking his bat the other day. Like, you think now it's the pressure and the eggshells out? There? It's that he's slumping. He's a human. I don't know. Did, I, why did, did J.D. You, Davis have to draw these conclusions? Who the did hell you, is he? 
did you also see the quotes about him basically saying like he was in New York, his his time in New York was fun, and he finally started feeling like he was getting good opportunities, but then like he had three GMs and three managers in the span of three years. Yes, and things kind of started to get screwy, and basically his this is funny, and this is this is interesting for the big picture of Buck Showalter. He kept on saying his final year with the Mets, he couldn't get comfortable. Every t- he every time he'd have a good game, like he'd hit a home run, he'd sit another day or two. Like it just wouldn't make a difference. He would never get in a role. And I yeah. feel that's very that that's very that's that's Buck Showalter in a nutshell. So I agree with JD Davis in terms of the different hitting philosophies, the general managers he went through the managers he went through, the coaches he went through. And it goes back to something we had said last time about the firing of Buck and the stability that an organization needs. It is not healthy to go through coaches and managers and GMs the way the Mets have. That is not a defense for keeping people that are bad at their jobs. But we all have to at least admit that. We all have to agree that that's not good. And that's got to stop. So I agree with J.D. Davis from that aspect. As far as playing time from a year ago, here's where I call BS on that. Now, yes, we've documented the Viento stuff. Last year, J.D. Davis was a platoon player. He was going to get a crack to face lefties. Dom was going to get a chance to face righties. And they both failed. They both failed. I never got the sense a year ago that J.D. Davis was getting hot and Buck Showalter was sitting him. The difference with Vientos as a young player is, A, it was his first shot. J.D. had been here for a couple of years. But also, we both agreed, I think most of us agreed, Vientos should just play every day. J.D. Davis wasn't playing every day, nor should he have played every day. Like, he was a platoon player. That's your job. Go face lefties and hit lefties, and he didn't, and he failed at it. So that aspect of his criticism, I I disagree with. But going through the coaches and the managers, and yeah, and and that's not good. That can't be good. And that can't be healthy for a relatively young player. So that aspect of J.D. Davis, I agree with. The I couldn't get in a groove last year. Shut up. You sucked. And putting Pete Alonzo on the, the psychiatrist couch because he didn't have a conversation with you at first base Shut up, J.D. Davis. The only thing I will defend him on is it's funny how once he went to San Francisco where there was he was getting regular at-bats, he started playing better. It's the only thing I will defend him on. Now, you're right. Shut up. You don't know Pete Alonso anymore. You guys aren't teammates. Maybe he just doesn't want to talk to you. You're, you're uh, his opponent. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, he doesn't want to – they're having a terrible – like, look at the records even. Like, the Mets are almost in last place in the league. Yeah, he's not talkative right now. He wants to win. By the way, one thing you mentioned too. You said there was like thirty-five. How many people were there tonight? Uh, on Sunday night, we're recording it after that game. I would say there were about mid twenties, high twenties. Wasn't a huge crowd. Yeah, like I would say yesterday was a was, on Saturday was a big crowd. Like yeah. it was wasn't forty four thousand, but it was it was thirty five. Well, the, the Mets are going to draw better than people think because they've sold a lot of tickets, especially to these weekend games. Like the next time the Mets are home, they're playing the L.A. Dodgers. They're going to get forty thousand for all three games. So even though the season may be spiraling, 
The idea that there's going to be 12,000 people in the building is not true. Sunday night was not ideal. There was rain in the forecast. It ended up raining a little bit late in the game. It rained before the game, that's for sure. And it was a Sunday night game, which while I may like, I know a lot of people don't like. Speaking of start times, and we'll do this on a different pod, I got a season ticket survey about start times, which I thought was really interesting. So we'll have that debate of the start times we all prefer, weeknight games, weekday games. But we'll do that another time. We got an all-star break. Plus, we may have a lot of meaningless games down the stretch. So we'll have time to mix all that stuff in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, to put a bow on Sunday's game, uh, Marte was back in the lineup. He was batting sixth. And while he didn't have a great offensive game, the little dunking blue pit behind in the count one and two, especially to a tough variety of submariner like Tyler Rogers, I thought was really impressive. So the hope is that little dump RBI single against a really tough reliever hopefully gets Marte going. What I would do right now if I'm Buck, though, I'll reinforce what I said last week. Tommy Pham just bat second. Keep Marte down in the order. And don't be in any rush to put him back in the two-hole. Just let him hit down in the order and hopefully get his stick going. That's it. That's what they got to do. Simple as that. I mean, Mark Hanna had a nice productive day at a home run. So he's going to try to get his at-bats back. And Pete Alonso hit a bomb of a two-run home run in the eighth inning, his 25th home run. Now, speaking of Pete, so when Pete first got hurt in Atlanta, I said to Craig on the air, because the timeline a few days later was, hey, he may miss a month. And so I said on air, and I stand by this, if he's going to come back right around the All-Star break, it would be a bad idea to be in the home run derby. It'd be a bad look. When he came back when he did, I said on the air to Craig, I'm good to go now. He can be in the home run derby now because now it's he's back. He's playing like let's not overanalyze this. So I stand by that for any Met fan who says, come on, Pete, you've been in a slump. The Mets suck. Why do you have to be in another home run derby? I have no issue with it. Pete loves it. Some fans love it. Do I love the home run derby? Not the way I used to. Do I care that much if Pete wins? Not really. I'll probably watch it because my kids are into it. But I have no way. I just want to get that out of the way. I got no issue with Pete Alonso being in the home run derby. Do you have an issue with Pete being in the home run derby? I, I don't know if I have an issue with him being in the home run derby. I kind of have an issue that he came back so soon because I feel like he's still hurt. Well, that's different. But that's different. Like the guy wants I- to help. The guy wants to play. Yeah, I know, but it's like 
if you're not healthy, if you're uh, listen, uh, you, we're talking about defense too, even where it's like that play that they wasn't easy that he botched and he threw the ball away. Um, but I just feel like he's just not a hundred percent right now. And it's, rather, it's, here's my counter to that. I'd rather have him at eighty percent despite his struggles because I think your options, if Pete's not back, is Mark Canna playing first base. That that's really what you're looking at because that's what we saw when Pete was on the injured list. So. Look, his slump dates back prior to his injury. So Pete was cooling off prior to that. Uh, I don't necessarily think like the bad throw he made has anything to do with his injury. Uh, He has hit into some very bad luck. So that's not having anything to do with the injury. He did hit the bomb of a two-run home run in his last at-bat Sunday. Hopefully that gets him going. So I think sometimes it's okay to have an athlete back at 70%. Because that's better than your options. And and I definitely think Pete's better at this percentage than any of the other options they have. But if you think he's hurt, then you wouldn't want him to be in the home run derby because it's an exhibition, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. That, and that's because, again, I, I just don't want him to get even more hurt. I don't want him to go out there and try to hit home run after home run after home run. And he just put wear and tear on his wrist for no reason, versus speaking. Yeah, I. I don't know, man. I don't think guys get hurt from the home run derby. I know there used to be that legend of guys go slumping after the home run derby and they stop hitting home runs like we saw with David Wright a decade and a half ago. There's no evidence of that with Pete. So he likes it. There's one of those things. He likes it. I thought it was really interesting. So apparently Pete announced this on ESPN for everybody that was watching at home. You saw it. Carl Ravitch brought it up and Pete announced, I'm going to be in the home run derby. They aired that on the big screen at City Field an inning later. Like during one of the half innings, they just put that part of the interview up on the screen and there was a reaction by the crowd. And the crowd had a rousing ovation to the news that Pete Alonso is going to be in the home run derby. So I I wouldn't have guessed that necessarily. I would have guessed a no reaction if I had to guess. Not that people would have booed. I think there will be some who say, what are you doing? He shouldn't do this. He's coming off an injury. He's slumping. The team sucks. Like, I I do think, I'm not on the air for a few days, but I can see that being like a WFAN debate for a day or two. I can see it, Pete. It's You know what, though? I bet you're going to get more of, oh, here we go again with Pete Alonso in the home run derby. It's all about him. He takes this way too serious. You know, well, he's going to be focused more on the season. They People love the crap on him over this. Like, why? He... He gets into the home run derby, okay? And that little video of him breathing heavily, preparing, it's kind of funny, but he likes it. It doesn't bother me. I think it would bother me if he, you know, sucked after, and I thought it was related to it, and that hasn't been the case. You know, if if he sucks after the home run derby, the easy excuse is, well, he was sucking before the home run derby. You know (laughs) what? He's been slumping for a month. You know, I, the, the way I look at it is this, because I always have this into this conversation with, with, with Brandon Tierney and Tiki Barber, with your new partner, by the way, uh, about the fact that Pete Alonso is not a star. Well, a way to be a star is in an event that is an exhibition and you can highlight your skill set, you enter it rather than, ah, I, I don't want to be in the home run derby, though people want you. So I think it's better for him anyway. I, so who well, cares if he likes it? Whatever. He is, you know, I mean, is he the best 
power hitter in Major League Baseball. He's definitely on that short list as the best pure slugger in baseball. Not saying he's better than Aaron Judge or better than Shohei Otani, but he is just purely as a slugger one of the elite players in baseball. So to have that guy want to be in the slugging competition every year is a very good thing for Major League Baseball. No doubt about it. I mean, in an ideal world, when I sit there on that Monday night with my kids, I want all the best home run hitters to be in it, right? It's like the slam dunk contest. Ideally, you'd want every every top NBA player to be in the slam dunk contest. We don't. We never have that. But yeah, for sheer entertainment, you would want that. I just don't have a problem with him being in it. And despite the Mets having a bad year and him slumping recently, it may be used against him. I'm just telling you, I got no problem with it. I'll tell you one thing I do have a problem with. I, I, I don't find it funny, number one. I don't think it matters as much as much as people think it matters. And that is this Bobby Bonilla day. Okay, we, we get it. The Mets made a deal. The Wilpons made a deal with Bobby Bowen, his second tenure, where they were going to pay him whatever that figure is, a million and a half every year for a million years. And so it's become this joke on July 1st of, oh, it's Bobby Bonilla Day. Even Steve Cohen's played into it. We should prance Bobby Bonilla around the stadium and do the whole thing. It drives me nuts because it is so effing common in baseball to give out these deferred contracts. It's common. Now, I get Bobby Bonilla was not a great New York Met. We all know it. Whether it was the first go around. When he told the media, I'll show you the Bronx and you won't get this smile off my face. And he's calling up the press box to complain about official scoring decisions. Whether it was his second tenure where he's playing freaking poker with Ricky Henderson during game six of the NLCS. Yeah, Bobby Bo's a joke. He's not a great man. But the deferred money thing is, come on, aren't we better than this? Aren't we so many guys? I... I could bore you with it, and I'm not going to do it. I promise you I'm not going to do it, though maybe I will do it. I'm not going to sit here and read off all the deferred contracts in baseball. Would you want that? Even from guys who have been retired longer than Bobby Bonilla. I could do that, and I'm not going to do that. So can we just stop with this Bobby Bonilla Day crap? Can I I just read one at least? Just just one. Sure. Because while the Mets are currently paying – Max Scherzer, $43 million this year. The Washington Nationals are paying him $15 million. You know why that one doesn't work as well, though? <laughs> He's still because playing. he won them a World Series. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> See, I wouldn't have used that. You're right, by the way, and it's a lot of money. But I wouldn't have used that example because if a guy wins me a World Series, I'll pay him whatever the hell he wants. Fine. I just, I think the joke is lame now. I thought for a while, yeah, okay, it's funny, Bobby Bonilla Day. But after a while, it's it's just it's enough. I don't want to hear about it anymore. It's like the butt fumble. It's very similar. The butt fumble and Bobby Bonilla Day. Enough, 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 enough. And thank God June is done. Speaking of enough, 7 and 19 in the month of June, which is just, I mean, hell. Wait, so you said that this is not the worst month in in history of of the Mets? Like I thought I honestly like that was so bad. The games made it feel worse than what the record was even though 719 is not good. Right. There's one that's worse than that? Oh, there's one that's worse than that. And and I'd argue with you it isn't even close that as bad as this month was, nothing will rival 
the June swoon of 2018, where the New York Mets finished with a record of 5-21 and 21 in the month of June. 5-21. and 21. Now, I know that these bad seasons sometimes crunch together and you forget about it. So let me walk everybody through how painful June of 2018 was. It was the very first year of Mickey Calloway. Mickey Calloway had taken over as manager after the failure of 2017. And we're going to do a podcast about 2017, by the way, because I believe I said this on the air with Joe years ago, and it'll be put up to the test now. I said to him, I said, Joe, 2017 is the most disappointing year I've ever had as a Met fan. That when you think about the expectations the team had to what ended up happening, it was worse than 93, worse than 92, because if you remember, the Mets won the pennant in 15. The Mets won a playoff spot in 2016, despite being riddled by injuries. 2017 was the year of, okay, everybody's healthy, we're back, we're going to win the whole goddamn thing, and they sucked. But that's for another podcast. So they, they failed in 2017, most disappointing year ever. They get rid of the manager. They bring in Mickey Calloway. I'm not telling you I thought the Mets would be great, but they started the year 11 and 1. 11 and 1. They swept the Washington Nationals on a three game series in D.C., including winning this great Sunday night game in 12 innings the same night of WrestleMania 34. Like life was great as a Mets fan. And then they started, you know, cooling off. And, and trust me, it started long before June 1st that they cooled off. They started the year 11 and 1. They fell to 500 on May 28th. So it did not take long to get to 500. They entered the month of June 27 and 27 and five games out. And then here's what happened they lost all three games to the Cubs at City Field 7 to 4, 7 to 1, and 2 nothing. They got swept by the Orioles at City Field 2 to 1 and 1 nothing. They got they lost two out of three to the Yankees, in which they scored six runs in three games. They went to Atlanta and got outscored ten to two in two games. They lost. Uh, they split with the Diamondbacks. They actually didn't. They had a series that they didn't lose. So congratulations in the month of June. They then lost three out of four to the Rockies. Got swept by the Dodgers. Lost two out of three to the Pittsburgh Pirates before the month finally ended when they lost to the Miami Marlins. They were 16 games under 500 and 15 games out of first place. That was the month of June of 2018. It was the June swoon to end all swoons. They sucked. They were terrible. And think about it. We just sat through one of the worst months ever. That month was worse by only two games actually when you're five and 21 versus seven and 19 i guess it was only a two but you said they were they, you said they were how many games under 500 they ended the month 16 games under 500 see we're in a good spot we we've <laughs> <laughs> we're in a good spot. i mean we were only 10 games under 500 it's, it's okay it's not as bad as 2018 if that's uh, the more if that's the the the, the Basically, the moral of the story, yeah, it's not as bad as 2018. Now, just so you know, they responded by going 12 and 12 in June, 15 and 15 in August, and then actually 18 and 10 in September, they finished 77 and 85. 
So they actually played reasonably well in the second half of the year. But And this is going to be the, the issue we all battle with. That's not good enough. You know, winning two out of three against the Giants is nice. It's not good enough. They're about to go on a six-game road trip. They've got to win four out of six games at the minimum. You do that, you go into the All-Star break, six games under five hundred. Still not great. Still not in a good spot. But at least you're going to start trending in the right direction. They need a run, a big run. A 18 out of 20. Uh, 20 out of 27. Like that kind of run to really get back into this thing and I think that's where 98% of us are very skeptical is going to happen. So I have a magic number. 52. It was 54, but now it's 52 because they won two games. Okay. They need 52 wins to get to to 90, if I'm correct. That's you the think magic. 90 gets you in? That, that definitely gets you in. Because what? The Phillies made the playoffs with 87 last year. So yeah, I think 90 is a good number. It's funny. I. It's tough to know. You know, we, we could sit here and look at the standings right now and say Miami, who got beat by Atlanta. I mean, think about it. And, and I enjoyed every second of it. As much as I hate the Braves, the, the NL East is over. Like, the Braves won it. The Mets are 18 and a half games out. So you know, I can't sit here rooting against Atlanta. You got to root for them to help you. And by beating the Marlins three straight games, they absolutely did. The Marlins are weird. They're 11 games above 500. They have a work. Listen to this, Pete. They have a worse run differential than the Mets. The Marlins, despite being 11 over, are minus 22. They have the worst offense in the National League. The Mets are minus 12. So you look at the Marlins with a very skeptical eye, plus the Mets play them a bunch of times, not as much as they would have under the old schedule, and you wonder, okay, are they going to survive? As well as they pitch, despite Alcantara having a terrible year, are the Marlins going to sit? and remain 10 games above 500 or more. And there's definitely skepticism that that's not going to happen. What are the Phillies? What are they? They're five over right now. Are they going to go on a big second half run? I feel okay about the Central, that someone's going to win it, obviously, and will a second team be a big factor? Right now, only two teams are above 500 in the NL Central, Cincinnati and Milwaukee. Then you look at the West, and that's the real tough one because Arizona's had a great year. The Dodgers haven't, but they're nine games above 500. And then you got the Giants, where this two out of three was monstrous because that's a tiebreaker. Like that's a tie, and that could matter. There were no more tiebreaker games. So if the Mets and Giants ever finish tied with the same record for the third wild card spot, Mets and Giants out. Now the Mets don't have that tiebreaker against the Milwaukee Brewers. They're not going to have that after losing all the games they did to them. Uh, we'll see about Philadelphia. We'll see about Miami. We'll even see about San Diego, though they're eight games above, under 500. And we'll certainly see about the Dodgers, because that series coming up at City Field will determine it after um, the Mets won two out of three in L.A. They won two out of three in L.A. No, they split in L.A. That's what they did. It was a four-game series. No, they won two out of three in L.A. They split against the Giants. They swept Oakland. They won two out of three against L.A. But all of those tiebreakers are going to matter if the Mets are able to get themselves back into this wild card picture. So you look at all these teams, and then you say, all right, three wild card spots. Will three of those teams be above 90? And I think you're probably right, Pete, that if you can get into that 88, 89, 90 range, that should be good enough. 
And you said, what do they have to do? They have to go 52 and 30? Th- Is that what you I said? Think, uh, I think it's like 52 and 26 or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. What the, the is. I, I'm not mad, dog. I, I heard them the other day try to do this. I can't figure it out. But I know 52 is how many they need to win. And yeah. that, to me, is the magic number. And listen, I, I listen. I, I'm not going to compare the Mets to the Braves, but what the Braves were like 54 and 27 or something like that going into this weekend. So I, it's not like it's, it's impossible to teams to have those records. You know, the, if they the Mets just have to do it in the second half. The the difference is obvious, though. The Atlanta Braves are really, really good. I mean, the Atlanta Braves have basically proven they're the best team in the National League, and we talk about how bad of a month June was for the Mets. The Atlanta Braves just completed a month in which they went 21 and four. Think about that. They just finished a month in which they went 21 and four. That's what they did in June. I and mean, it's remarkable. And I was looking at, well, when did they lose? Cause that's such an absurd record to have in June. They lost a three to two game. They lost a 6-5 game in 10. They lost an 11-10 game to Cincinnati last week. So three of their four losses were by one run in crazy fat. They, they could have had an undefeated month. <laughs> they're so much better than the Mets. I hate to say it. They just are. And right now, they're so much better than everybody in the National League. Now, the good news is, what the hell does that mean come October? doesn't mean anything. They, they can finish with the best record in the National League. Great. They get that first round by. Good for them. They go play that divisional series against you name it. They could easily lose. That's that's the, I guess, the, the negative of this whole thing. Yeah, the greatest regular season ever. It don't mean a damn thing. Well, I guess that's why I'm holding out hope that somehow the Mets really get hot at the right time. Because last year I saw them grind out a 101-1 season. They fell flat the last week of the season, and they carried it into the playoffs. So if they could do the opposite this year, maybe they go for a nice little run to the World Series. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Whatever you say. This team wins one series, and we're all like, oh, hey, here's how we can get um, in. Clearly, I'm nuts. I saw my family today. I saw my wife today for the first time. She's like, I don't know. Uh, the, the, it's not <laughs> terrible, but I think I like you more with hair. And then one of my other kids was just like, you're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> hey, crazy, but you try anything. You try anything. This will be an interesting week against Arizona. The Diamondbacks have had a tremendous regular season, though the pitching matchups are not scary. They face Zach Davies in game one on Tuesday afternoon with Kodai Senga on the mound. They face Tommy Henry, a lefty who's pitched pretty well for Arizona, especially over his last few starts against Max Scherzer. And then they're going to face Ryan Nelson in the finale on Thursday night. Remember, they got an afternoon game on the 4th of July at like 4 o'clock, and then late night baseball on Wednesday and Thursday as the Mets try to win another series. Can they win another series? Ah, They probably won't. Probably won't. But hey, at least we can enjoy this. The Mets win two out of three against the Giants. We appreciate you listening and downloading. You can obviously email the pod anytime, the Rico B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. We'll give you another Rico Bronia for sure after this series wraps up with the Arizona Diamondbacks very, very late on Thursday night into Friday morning. I'm out on the fan till Wednesday, and I'll be doing a couple of shows with my old partner, Joe Beningo. So you can tune in Wednesday, two o'clock. I'll talk to you then. Appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronia. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.